last week, the, the whisper of God. No, I will not whisper for this entire message. In fact, I will stop right now. Good morning. It's good to be together with you this morning and pick up the story where we left it off last week. Remember last week we had a dejected Elijah who God brought to Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai and he reminded him that he not only works in the fire and the whirlwind and the earthquake, but he also works in that still small voice in the whisper. And Elijah was given a task. He was given a task to go and to anoint uh, Haziel, the pagan king of Aram or Syria, to anoint Jehu to be king over Israel, and then to anoint Elisha to be his successor. We come today in the verses that immediately follow our story to the third of those tasks that Elisha was given, but the first that he carries out, excuse me, Elijah was given, but the first that he carries out. I know I'm going to do that several times this morning, so bear with me. And that is the, the calling of Elisha. So if you'll read with me, I'm going to be picking up 1 Kings chapter 19, beginning in verse 19, and carrying on through the end of the chapter. So he, which is Elijah, departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the 12th. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him, and he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he, Elijah, said to him, Elisha, Go back again, for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him, took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them, and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen, and he gave it to the people, and they ate. And then he arose, Elisha did, and he went after Elijah, and he assisted him. Thus far, in the reading of God's word, grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. We pray with me? Father, we pray that you would open our eyes this morning as we dig into this portion of your word. May you attend this preaching, Holy Spirit. We ask that you would open our hearts, and just as Elisha was plowing that field, we pray that you would plow the soil of our hearts, break up the, the clods that are there, and make it a fertile soil. Lord, we pray all of this, not for simply our good, but most prominently for your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, we are continuing on in this story. We're going to be looking over the next several weeks at the Elijah, as we've already been looking at him, and then carrying on into Elisha. This is the first time that they come into contact with each other. And the question is, for Elijah and for us, is God 
able to work when the obvious things that we expect, when the fire falls from heaven and the sacrifice is burned and consumed and the people seem to respond to that action, but then they don't. And really nothing seems to change. Is, is God still at work? And, and we struggle with these questions all the time. We, we look for him in the fire. We look for him in the whirlwind. We look for him in the earthquake. But God reminds us, just as he reminded Elijah last week, that it's the still small voice. It's the murmur. It's the unexpected that he carries out so often his work. And, and here we're going to see the, the beginnings of that. Here this call comes to Elisha to assist Elijah. We'll get into all of that in just a minute. But this is the first part of the whisper that Elijah now is going to experience. He thought he was alone. He's not going to be alone anymore. He thought that uh, the word was going to be dried up with him. The word is not going to be dried up. And I want to walk through this passage by focusing on three things, the cloak, the kiss, and the cow, and what they might mean for each of us. So let's start at the cloak. Here we see in this cloak the continuing presence of God's word as it pushes into the world and carries out his plan. You say, where do you see that? That's a lot to read into a cloak. Well, this cloak is actually pretty significant. We first see the cloak up in verse 13 of chapter 19. When Elijah heard the sound of the low, soft whisper, he wrapped his face in his cloak, and he went out and he stood at the entrance of the cave. It was this cloak that absorbed, as it were, the word of God, that listened to the testimony, that heard the call, that heard the promise that God was still at work. And it is this cloak, then, that he throws over Elisha, that he signifies the, the passing of the baton, as it were, that this cloak, this word of God cloak, is going to come to you. Then, very significantly, this cloak comes back in 2 Kings chapter 2, when Elijah is taken up into heaven, and you remember the cloak falls from the chariot of fire, and Elisha picks up that cloak and, and wears it, but before he even puts it on, he rolls it up, and he strikes the river Jordan with him, and he parts it, and he is able to cross over. There is this passing of the baton, but there is this presence of the word that comes to Elisha and it, it taps him on the shoulder and says, you now are going to be my man. Now, it doesn't completely happen here, as I said. It finishes its work in Second Kings chapter 2. But the principle here is really, really important. The principle was that Elijah was discouraged. He thought that the word that had come in power on Mount Carmel was ineffective. And he thought that he was the last one and that the word of God would die out with him. But what we see here is that God always has a man. God always has a person to continue to carry out that work. 
Here it's Elisha, this young, uh, most likely uh, farmer, uh, 160 miles away from where Elijah was, probably somebody he hasn't really met before. There's no evidence of that in the text. Probably somebody who uh, we can't say for sure, but did he ever think of being a prophet? There, there existed schools of prophets at this time, but he wasn't at that school. And yet the word of God came to him and God said, I am going to continue pushing forward my word into this world. There are so many things that are encouraging for us here uh, and just even interesting to note. Uh, I, I think the unexpectedness of this, we again, we get so attuned to looking in particular ways, even through this pandemic. We've been reminded of that. We're accustomed to the word of God going forth from the pulpit, gathering, inviting people to worship and and people becoming converted, changing their lives through that. Now, as we are not gathering in those same ways, we ask ourselves, does the word still have power? Is it still going out? And the answer is, of course. But it may not be in the fire of a large gathering. It may be in the whisper of neighbors talking to each other on the street. It may be in the murmur of uh, Zoom calls even and interactions that we have there. We must never forget that God still has his ways. He still has his men, his women. He still has his ways of pushing his word out into the role the or into the world the other thing that we have to remember is that we might be the ones that God is tapping I, th I think it's so interesting here the the call for Elijah is completely at least as far as we see it in this text external this is different than than we often associate things in in the west we we think of an internal call first well god called me to do this god called me to do that that happens uh internally but here it's external it is elijah the prophet coming to elisha and saying let me help you understand what the call to your on your life is and this is something that we, we as a community need to pay attention to. We need to be recognizing others' gifts, and, and we need to help people discern their call. And we also need to be open to that. If somebody comes to us and says, I believe that the Lord may be setting you apart for this particular work, we, we need to be open to the Lord's work in that way. There is often that balance between an external and an internal call. Uh, in the West, with our hyper-individualism, we're more attuned to the individual or internal call. Uh, this is a passage that reminds us that God often works externally. One last thing that I will say here. Uh, you know, as we think about God's continuing presence of the Word to push out into His world, I think it's so important for us to remember in the West, in America particularly, we look around in our cities 
and, and we see broken down systems, we see dysfunction in so many ways, but it's not only in the cities. I was just having a conversation this morning that reminded me very much in the countryside, the opioid epidemics and just the loss of purpose, uh, people who take their own lives uh, at, at a high, high rate. We, we look in America and we say, oh God, your, your word, it does, doesn't have the power. It's not, it's not transforming your world in the way that we are accustomed to or we think that it should be. But we have to remember that, that God is looking at the world, not only America. And one of the things that we can take encouragement from is that Christianity, uh, despite the effects of secularism in the West, is continuing to grow throughout the world. Christianity is growing faster than the population. Pentecostals and evangelicals uh, are growing the fastest above Roman Catholicism and, and other groups. Uh, atheism seems to have peaked in the world. Uh, there are fewer atheists in the world today than there were in 1970. So in the roughly 50 years, atheism is in decline. And so much of this is due to the fact that the center of Christianity has moved from the West, moved from Europe and North America to the global South. In 1900, twice as many Christians lived in Europe as the rest of the world combined. Think about that. Twice as many in Europe as the rest of the world combined. Currently, Christianity is barely growing in Europe, less than a 1% growth rate. Uh, similarly, in America, it is not growing as well. But in Latin America, in Asia, in Africa, uh, particularly in Asia and Africa, Christianity is exploding. Uh, by 2050, uh, Christians in Asia will surely pass the numbers in, of, of Christians in Europe. So you see the dramatic shift, and, and so often we get discouraged because of what we see and what we experience right here, right now, in a very secular Western society. But we need to look, like Elijah, not only at the fire on the mountain, but we need to pay attention to that whisper. We need to see that God has his Elishas. He's got these farmers. He's got people in other parts of the country that we aren't even thinking about. There are the 7,000 that have never bowed their knee to Baal. Remember God's promise to Elijah in that way. Uh, and it might be that they are in Africa or that they are, in, that they are in China. And we are going to be looking to the Africans. We are going to be looking for the Asians. And we are going to say, help us. We need that kind of humility and that kind of hope. The second thing that I want you to note here, moving on from the cloak, is the kiss. Now, here Elijah says, let me go back and kiss my father and mother, and then I will follow you. A lot of people have uh, looked at this and said, Elijah is hesitant to, to follow Elisha. I think the reason why they do that largely is because they've overread Luke 9 into this passage. 
Uh, it's good for us to compare the Old and the New Testament, but we have to be careful that we make sure we're making the right comparison. In Luke 9, Jesus is talking about discipleship, and he's talking about the absolute commitment of discipleship, which we're going to talk about in just a minute. But he says at the end of that in Luke 9, 62, that no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Well, they've read that and they've heard hints of Elisha. In fact, in the very next story or in the previous story to that one in Luke chapter 9, we hear hints of Elijah. So it may very well be on Jesus's mind, but the comparison here is uh, being called to the plow, and Elisha is being called away from the plow. Uh, and it seems that this kiss that he has is more honorific of his parents, a signification of the fact that he loves them. But his call, or his response to the call, is immediate, and it is joyful. Uh, one writer puts it this way, here is someone who leaps at the chance to be a prophet soon to succeed someone who has tried to lay down the prophetic office, contrasting a little bit Elisha in 19 with Elijah in 19. Here is someone who runs, as Elijah did before, when he suddenly became weary. Here is a promising apprentice indeed, cutting loose from human securities and placing himself in God's hands. Elisha's response seems to be absolute. Notice what he does here. He takes uh, the yoke of oxen and he sacrifices these two cows uh, and he gives them to the people. What, what he does here is, is very much what the sailors, Cortez and others who had come to America, they said, burn the ships. Uh, I can't have my sailors thinking about going back to Europe, back to their homes. They have to be absolutely committed to the mission that they are on here as we explore these new lands. And, and here Elisha demonstrates this. He takes, uh, symbolically as it were, he takes his old vocation, his call to be a farmer, uh, and it's, it's probable that he was a wealthy, part of a wealthy family. There's 12 yoke of oxen, and whether they owned them all or they were simply borrowing 12 yoke to plow all their land, either way, uh, it, it's significant. He was, he was a significant family in a significant place. He had a lot of security in his future going forward. Um, he had a place of prominence in the community. Uh, he had a vocation, so a, a clear path marked out for him. And symbolically, he sacrifices it all. He burns the ships. He says there, there's no going back. It, it even defies prudence. We think, well, why sacrifice these things? Wouldn't it have been better to sort of hedge your bets? And if the profit thing doesn't work back, work out, you can always come back and take up the yoke of oxen again and, and take up your call. But Elisha doesn't do that. He says, yes, Lord. He responds wholeheartedly. He doesn't hold anything back. He says, despite the, the lack of prominence that I'm going to have, he's going to be Elijah's servant. We'll talk about that in a minute. Despite the, the lack of security that I have for the future, I don't know where this is going to lead. Despite the lack of safety, it was not wise 
I mean, Elijah is enemy number one of the state, and, and now you're going to affiliate with this guy. This was not a wise, safe move on Elisha's part. But the gospel call, the call to discipleship, the call to follow, doesn't always come with security and safety and all of these things. Uh, or, let me put it this way, it doesn't come with worldly security and safety, but rather it calls us to wholeheartedly place ourselves inside of the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and in that kingdom vision, in the execution of the kingdom mission, that is our security and our safety. So here, Elisha lays it all down, and it does bring us this question, uh, because Jesus, in Luke 9 and other places, he, he talks oftentimes about the, the call of discipleship. It's to take up your cross, to come and die, Mark 8, 34, other places. Uh, in order to gain your life, you must lose your life. This is the consistent message of Jesus. It's the pattern that he gave us in order to gain life for himself and for us. He laid down his life. It's a reminder that we can't simply add on Jesus to all of the other things that we do. We've got our friends that we want to work out this way. We've got our sports and our music that we want to work out this way for our glory. And, and I'll just add Jesus into that and it will be okay. It's not to say that we can't have friends. It's not to say that we can't have uh, relationships. You see that even here with the father and mother, our family. But these things are subservient to, they are in support of our, our sports, our music, our academics, our work. They're in support of the number one vocation that we have, and that is to follow Jesus, to be his follower, to pursue his kingdom. And so, brothers and sisters, I, I ask you to consider that. Like, how is everything else in your life, your work, your family, uh, your relationships, your friends, your sports, your music, your finances, your politics, how are all of those things getting in line behind the kingdom? Because that is the wholehearted call that is here. The last thing that I will note is the cow. And this is where we sort of take the next step. We see God is working and he's continuing to push it out, the cloak. We see that he comes into our lives and he asks us to, to lay it all down, to wholeheartedly follow him, the kiss. And now we come to the cow. And here's where we will see that the life of discipleship is one of glorious sacrifice producing a harvest of joy. There are several ways that we see this in this passage. Notice the last clause of our text for today. Then he, Elisha, arose and went after Elijah, and he assisted him. I've already alluded to it. Elisha left a life of prominence in his community to become a servant of Elijah. 
2 Kings chapter 3, we hear a little bit more about the nature of that servitude. Jehoshaphat is asking for a prophet in verse 11. This is 2 Kings 3.11. Is there no prophet of the Lord here whom we may acquire? Then one of the king of Israel's servants answered, Well, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here, who poured water on the hands of Elijah. It's not a glorious thing that Elisha steps into. He steps into the, the life of a servant, attending, assisting Elijah, pouring water on his hands, making sure that he is clean. What did he gain by giving up his position of prominence? What wisdom in there was becoming was there in becoming a servant of Elijah? Well, brothers and sisters, this is where we see Jesus so clearly in this passage. For there was one who left the prominence of heaven in order to become a servant, a, a slave, a bond servant. Uh, in order, he, he gave up the robes of heaven in order to take on the mantle, the cloak of our humanity, to become a servant of all. Jesus said to them, you know, the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. He's talking to his disciples and their desire for authority and power. He says, it, but it should not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must become your slave. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Um, this is such a beautiful picture in what Elisha does here. Elisha pours water on the hands of Elijah. Jesus himself took up the basin and the towel, and he poured water on the feet of his disciples, and he washed them. This is the very nature of discipleship, and this is where we recognize that Elisha is pointing us to Jesus. And it's interesting, too, because, you know, sort of here, subpoint-wise, we see servanthood, number one. We see that servanthood points to the Savior, number two. Uh, Elisha is the virtually the same name as Yeshua. Uh, Yahweh saves, Yeshua, uh, Joshua, Jesus, God saves, El Shah, uh, Elisha. And we recognize that Elisha is, is pointing us to the one who is greater than him. He's pointing us to Jesus, the one who would ultimately come and lay down his life as a sacrifice for us. And this is the third thing here that we see. And this does bring us to the cow. Elisha takes the emblem of his life. And he sacrifices it for the townspeople. He puts it on uh, the yoke, the wood there, and he empties the life of that oxen, that cow. Uh, and he feeds the whole town. And, and here we just see such a beautiful picture 
of what the Lord Jesus has done. He brings it all together in his own person and not on the yoke of the oxen, but rather on the wood of a Roman cross. He sacrifices his own life in order that it might bring forth a harvest of new life. It is the words that he gives us in John chapter 12, where Jesus says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, my Father will honor him. This is the principle. The principle is when we lose our lives, when we lay them down into the sacrifice of Jesus, because of his sacrifice, it will produce a great harvest. I, I love that passage in, in Nehemiah chapter 8 that we saw in our declaration of forgiveness this morning. Here, the word of the Lord comes to the, the people of Israel after they've come back out of captivity and they're rebuilding the temple and, uh, and the walls of the city, all of that. And they find the law and, and it makes them weep. They see the sadness. But Nehemiah and the priests and Ezra, uh, they, they say, no, no, stop, don't, don't weep, go away, eat the fat, drink the sweet wine, send portions to, to, uh, to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord, and do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is, the strength, is our strength. And, and here, brothers and sisters, we see that picture as Elisha sacrifices his old way of life. It bursts forth into filet mignon and porterhouse and the best of, of ground beef and meat. The whole town came around and they enjoyed the feast that was provided for them. And so it is with us, my friends. Jesus the, the grain of wheat has fallen to the ground and he has died and he has burst forth in an abundant harvest of which we are a part. So do not be grieved. Rejoice. Know that God has a, a continual plan for this world that his word pushes forth. Know that he is calling you into his service and that while he is calling you to come and die, it is a call that is so full of life and beauty. Maybe unexpected, but it's a call of life and beauty and do not be grieved. Brothers and sisters, it's so good to come around God's word and to be reminded of his truth for us. May it encourage all of our hearts today. Will you pray with me? Father, we do pray that you would penetrate this word into our heart and our lives. May it, uh, this grain of life, take root in, our, in the soil of our hearts and burst forth into an abundant harvest of joy. Father, I pray for those who are maybe caught in a moment of indecision. Is it worth it? 
to, to burn the cow? Is it worth it to, to lay down the yoke of oxen and, and to follow you? Uh, may they see the beauty of what it is to be your disciple, for you have laid down your life for us, and it's in that train that we have abundant, abundant life. Praise be to you, Father. We pray all in Jesus' name. Amen. Go now with the peace of the Lord. Love you all. Look forward to seeing you. Goodbye.